Our second reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for God's word to us today. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Recently, I was at a parent-child camp with my oldest daughter, and we came to what has always been for me the most awkward request in making introductions in a group, where you're asked to tell one interesting fact about yourself. So searching my mind for something to say that I thought might not sound convoluted or conceited or simply a letdown, I think I blurted out something innocuous, like my favorite color is blue. (laughs) But if I could take it back, if I could have a do-over, I think I would say this, that I am a 40 grams of coffee to 535 grams of water kind of person because that's the ratio for a perfect cup of pour-over coffee. If you don't trust me, try it out yourself and let me know. Many of you here know that I have a affection, a deep affection for coffee and that you'll likely never find me too far from grasping a delicious cup of coffee. However, my relationship with coffee had a very rocky beginning. During my college years, I briefly had a job as a barista at a local marketplace, and I must confess I was mostly terrible at it. I clearly remember arriving at an ungodly hour my first day and swiftly being given the most complicated coffee orders possible. I was swamped with mocha frappuccinos, macchiatos, vanilla lattes, cardamom steamers. My mind barely recalling the instructions for making one before five more came calling. Overwhelmed, my brain felt like a, like a laptop with too many internet browser tabs left open. 
And in a moment of thoughtlessness, I I pressed my unprotected finger to a hot steel lever of a milk steamer. And in an instant, that finger was seared, burned, and scarred. Beloved chef Anthony Bourdain, a patron saint of restaurant workers and travelers, once referred to his right forefinger calloused by every knife he had ever held as a kind of secret handshake of his profession. You weren't a chef until you had one. Well, I never forgot the feeling of that burn, and my finger wore a scar from that episode for months. I guess I officially joined the club of restaurant and hospitality workers. But one way or another, We all have worn the experiences of our labors on our bodies. Bags under weary eyes, cuts and scrapes, or more hidden scars like trauma and anxiety. And they reveal a vital truth about what scripture calls vocation. Vocation is more than a job. It is a calling which comes from the Latin word vocare. It is a purpose that beckons or calls to us that we must follow. A vocation can be a job for sure, but it also encompasses all manner of labor under heaven, paid or unpaid, recognized or not, to which God is the beginning and the end of our endeavors. And the truth of vocation is that it is a physical endeavor. When the prophet Ezekiel heard a call to ministry, he ate the scrolls of scripture with his teeth. When Abram and Sarai hear a call, they get their feet to walking to a far country. You cannot think your way into a calling. You must respond to it with your whole self, mind, spirit, and yes, your body. A few years ago, sociologist Carolyn Chen researched modern-day callings by following technology workers in Silicon Valley in California. She found that companies began speaking to their employees' bodies, minds, and souls' needs with incentives like three gourmet meals a day, yoga, and philosophy classes. The result, she thought, resembled a faith community with, quote, members who belong to a shared community and believe in a higher and transcendent goal. For some, work has brought belonging and identity, not found anywhere else. Though sometimes that comes with a price. In the Egypt of the book of Exodus, It is Pharaoh who requires those who toil under the sun to give him their body, mind, and spirit. Singer Dean Martin once said of his friend and fellow entertainer Frank Sinatra, a very larger-than-life personality, that it's Frank's world, we are all just living in it. In Egypt, it is Pharaoh's world, and everyone else just serves it. And to drive that point home, two midwives tasked with the business of tending to newborn bodies are asked to drown those same bodies when they no longer serve Pharaoh's supremacy. 
Now, Pharaoh's role as a supreme ruler carried with it some legitimate purposes, you might say, described in ancient Egyptian literature as bringing mat, harmony, and repelling isfet, or chaos. The closing chapters of Genesis cleverly portray how these economic and political responsibilities served as cover with Israelite Joseph's help for the confiscation of all property in Egypt into Pharaoh's hands and every body in Egypt under Pharaoh's bondage, serving his body. As Yuval Noah Harari reminds us, Pharaoh was just flesh and blood, but Pharaoh's body became transcendent. Pharaoh became a system of governance, a story Egyptians told one another, an image which kept them in fear. Pharaoh, you see, can take on many forms. European political philosopher Thomas Hobbes used the term Leviathan to describe what we've called Pharaoh. The Leviathan was the sovereign ruler who brought civic order preventing life from becoming, quote, nasty, brutish, and short, unquote. Emerging when, to quote Hobbes, a multitude of men are made one person, and when they are by one man or one person represented, unquote. The cover of Hobbes' book on the subject depicted a giant medieval king wielding a scepter and sword, but composed of hundreds of individual little bodies representing his subjects. It's an image worthy of Pharaoh's own heart. As we read in scripture today, the apostle Paul was also fascinated with the image of the body. In fact, it became his primary metaphor for our relationship with Christ. For Paul, being a member of the body meant joining in a mission and identity larger than the self. To belong to the body of Christ was as demanding as membership in Pharaoh's body because it asked for your whole self, body, mind, and spirit. Which begs an important question for us today. How do you know when you're living in the body of Christ or that of Pharaoh. Not every workplace, relationship, or profession that asks for your whole self intends you harm, you see. Sometimes getting lost in your work is a pathway from selfishness to self-actualization. But how do you know when you tell the, to tell the difference between a body that wants to liberate you and one that wants to drain you like a battery until you're all used up. The body where, as the gospel puts it, you find your life by losing it, versus the one where, as the band U2 single with or without you put it, you give and you give and you give yourself away. When theologian Karl Barth looked at Paul's language about we being one body in Romans. He took the one body to mean fellowship or communion. The one, he said, is not one among others, not a cell in a larger organism, but simply the holy one, sanctus, sanctus, 
Latin word for holy. If this is true, I believe Paul is telling us here that other members of the body, our neighbors, are not cogs in a machine or means to an end, but a sacred presence representing God's own self. To trample over them or to uncritically accept Pharaoh's distorted picture of them is to turn our backs on God. So our response should be to them, as Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians, that if another member of the body suffers, we suffer with them. And if another is honored, we rejoice with them. I'm convinced that Shipra and Pua, living in the bowels of Pharaoh's Egypt, refuse to be part of Pharaoh's body. Instead, they chose to see their neighbors, Hebrew women and their male children, as standing in for God. The Hebrew word for fear in this passage, yirah, is a word more akin to awe and reverence than terror. Terror is what Pharaoh is after. Reverence is what God seeks. In the eyes of God, the other is the one who the despot Pharaoh is desperate for us not to love. Because of their yirah, their fear of God, their awe, the midwives whose gaze was formerly fixed on Pharaoh and his needs is lifted so that they may show empathy for their beloved neighbors. But that change is not without consequence. Earlier this summer, when Pastor Nanette was preaching about Jesus' parable of the sower, something she said struck me, that the sower in Jesus' story might be a terrible farmer, sowing seeds everywhere, not caring where, but sure was a very good God. Sometimes it's the right thing to be bad at the job that we have been given. In that sense, Shipra and Pua embodied what Dr. King preached, that sometimes we are called to be holy nonconformists. King meant what he said. When 60 years ago tomorrow, he joined with 250,000 compatriots for what was one of this nation's largest demonstrations in nonconformity a collective refusal to play the fool in Pharaoh's racialized body. At the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, there were singers present like Harry Belafonte and Tony Bennett, who died this summer. There were actors like Marlon Brando and Charlton Heston, whose politics would later diverge, but for one late summer day were simpatico. There was Bayard Rustin, the black gay brainchild of the march, and there were farmers and steelworkers, teachers and housekeepers and war veterans. And on that day, your title or the source of your paycheck hardly mattered. The crooners put down their lyrics, the actors their lines. The teachers put down their lesson plans, the factory workers their tools. Instead, each became a part of a new body and took up a new vocation. They all became walkers, demonstrators, putting their bodies on the line, making them living sacrifices within a body seeking justice, healing, and hope 
they became the body that we in this sanctuary, in this community call the body of Christ. But there are those among us who still choose Pharaoh's body. Yesterday, and gunman walked into a dollar store in Jacksonville, Florida, sending that community into terror and cutting short the lives of three beautiful black people. He was armed not only with, with weapons, with guns, but a racist manifesto that is Pharaoh's calling card. But I don't want to give him, and I don't want us to give him the last word. This summer, I found myself, along with some beautiful Fourth Church people, doing a fair amount of walking too. With fourth members, I marched in a hunger walk with Breakthrough Ministries in East Garfield Park here in Chicago, in the Pride Parade down Clark Street in Chicago, with St. Sabina Parish in Auburn Gresham on the south side of Chicago. I even marched in a 4th of July parade for the town of Skokie and ran into fourth members there. In each case, when I looked out at these neighbors and beloveds, not as Pharaoh would dictate, but as the holy other, they truly are. I was astounded. Let me tell you, I saw LGBTQ neighbors cheering for Christians who would dare walk the streets of their neighborhoods sharing a gospel of love and faithfulness with conviction. I walked with residents in East Garfield Park who tended with loving devotion to empty lots and wanted to build playgrounds and urban farms. I walked with mothers in Auburn Gresham who take pride in the successes of their children and their own degrees in a neighborhood where Pharaoh tells us to count these people out. In the community I call home, I saw children of every hue, cultural background, and religious background cheering with glee on a 4th of July waving flags for a country that is not quite yet, but perhaps can be consonant with the beloved community. These glimpses of the Holy Other made me say, yes, they are worth it. They are worthy of our struggle, worth the awkwardness of not knowing how to talk about race or money, worth the patient listening that takes hours before a few seconds or a minute of a breakthrough, worth the stretching of our own dollars and time, dollars and time we aren't sure we have. This dream, those holy others are worth it. Over the course of our lives, we are regularly confronted with the question in whose body we will seek membership, to whom will we give our life, our best, our all? To whom will we entrust the treasures within our souls? Will it be Pharaoh's systems and schemes and unending appetites? 
or will it be God and God's beloved community? Now more than ever, the question raises itself in our families and households, our neighborhoods, our politics, our economics, our stewardship of the planet itself. My prayer is that each of us, each of you, might have such a vision of your neighbors, our neighbors, so that we might choose the right body. And at the end of the day, you and I may say then, come what may, it is worth it. Amen.